Good morning. So I want to share a prayer with you this morning. It's a prayer from an English Puritan, 17th century, about 1690, plus or minus a few years, written at a time when the rate of childhood death and infant mortality was especially high and very common. It's a prayer that uh, many of the early colonial American churches and church members would have said in a very genuine and serious way because of the conditions around them. And it's a prayer most of us have heard. In fact, I think it's a prayer that many of us have recited more than once. And so if you know it, just join with me. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. The soul, the language of the soul from this early childhood uh, prayer for many of us uh, is a great example of how at the earliest of ages we are introduced to and we are drawn to the language of the soul. And when we think about it, it's really a pretty mainstream terminology. It's, it's sort of everywhere around us. I mean, who of us have not caught ourselves belting out R-E-S-P-C-T? <laughs> right? Along with Miss Aretha Franklin, the queen of soul music. Or maybe if you've had the privilege of sitting down to a plate of cornbread and greens and sweet potato pie and good soul food. Maybe you're someone who's been complimented or admired for having the nostalgia or the maturity of an old soul. Uh, you've contemplated the tragedy of selling one's soul. In romance, maybe you've searched for, you found, perhaps you even lost your soul mate. And if it's the latter, then maybe a friend tried to console you with handing you a, one of the 800 copies of chicken soup for the soul. We're told the eyes are the windows to the soul, that being transparent is a form of burying our soul, and that if we really, really want to keep a secret, then we should never tell a soul. And then just maybe, maybe a few of you, even this morning, you got in and you drove right over here in your Kia soul. <laughs> oh, it's everywhere. It's a popular word. It's a popular concept. We love to talk about it in the world and we love to be drawn into it at a very surface and superficial level. And But here's the deal. The, the word soul and the language of the soul is deeply rooted in scriptural origins. It is so important that we need to realize it is the result of God's created design for those of us in His image, all of us. It's fundamental to understanding who we are and whose we are. And yet, for as often as it's referenced, and it's not just the wider cultural environment, Inside the church walls, we're soul winners for lost souls. We search our souls. We bless my soul. It is well with my soul. Often what we find through any number of studies and surveys or just really the casual conversation is that most of us, I'm speaking to the choir and all of us in this, have no better understanding of the depths of our soul and the relationship in our faith than when we knelt beside the bed and laid ourselves down to sleep. We think about it. Tomorrow morning, up the elevator, someone stops you and says, hey, we're doing a series on the soul at your church. I heard about that. Tell me about it. What's the soul? What's God say about the soul? I, I, we stop. You know, I, 
hesitate, kind of stumble, think about it, uh, have a hard time describing it, providing a definition. And then, probably worst of all, how rarely do we ever even think or consider the idea of if and when and how soul care should even apply to us as followers of Jesus? And so that's our charge, that uh, over these next several weeks, we are going to explore the idea of soul knowledge. We're going to understand that when we avoid this topic at a deeper understanding, that really what we're doing, the consequent as it relates to our faith, is that we limit the transformational ways in which God can truly shape us. The ways in which he shapes us determines how we live our lives, whether we live more Christ-like and whether we truly experience a deeper relationship with him and others. We're going to discover the biblical practices that are often modeled by Jesus himself that better align our soul in the channels of God's shaping grace. And so with that sort of background charge in mind this morning, I'd like us today to establish a scriptural foundation to introduce us to the soul. Where was it created? What is it? And then with the help of the Apostle Peter, who walks us, what I like to think, through a uh, progressions of the soul, we're going to talk about just a few conditions or states of the soul that we all find ourselves in or will find ourselves in. And so to begin, let's start at the very beginning. I'm told that's always a very good place to start. Genesis. Creation, Genesis 2-7, we read that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And so what we're seeing here is that in creation, God is, is forming up, he's, he's, he's taking all this, this dust, this dirt of the ground and he's creating this physical shell, this, this bag of bones or this, this bag of dirt. This, this dirt bag. <laughs> you and I are dirt bags. That's really liberating, too. I thought about that this week. The next time, hey, dirt bag. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's me. That's great. But see, here's the, here's the wonderful thing. God doesn't leave us that way. And his breath gave us life. It gave us a soul that distinguished us from every other living species. The breath gifted us a soul that is alive and it is core to our existence with and before God and in relationship with others. It's the inner life, the true self, who you and I are at our deepest levels. And this is, this is really important to catch, really important to catch, is that this account is telling us that we are not a body with a soul. We are a soul with a body. We are not a body with a soul. We are a soul with a body. Now, that's, that's a little bit. You've got to think about that and play it in your mind. Let me give you one that may be a little more eloquent and uh, certainly a little more well-established from something C.S. Lewis wrote. C.S. Lewis tells us in the same sort of vein, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And this body we have simply makes it possible for us to carry our soul around in a physical world. And the reason this is so important to understand is that the way we view this, the way we, we think about this, it establishes the perspective from which we live out our life. Whether we find significance and identity and self-value attached to our bodies 
or to our souls. Whether we live with more attention to our bodies or to our souls. And, and I know, I, I mean, I, I catch the irony here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you later about signing up for Run for God. And, and then getting you into praise craze and, and faith and fitness and those two things. And so let me just make sure the qualifier is in place. It's not that we ignore our bodies. We take care of our bodies, and uh, particularly as they are used to glorify God. We create endurance and strength in our bodies so that we can better serve Him and serve others with greater endurance and longer. But really, the, the idea is that we at least balance the care with equal or greater attention to our soul over our body. I mean, we've, I'm sure you've heard, and I'm, I'm guessing we'd have all hands up that you agree with. It's not what's on the outside that counts. It's really what's on the inside that matters most, right? We say that. We say that all the time. Do we really mean that? And when I say do we mean it, do we, do we live that way? Do we live in a way that what's on the inside matters most? That's a soul-searching question. And that's really where we sort of kick off this, this series and this study. The inside matters most because it was designed by God and it is what is life to us. And so if we begin at the very beginning, what we can do then is we can move through Scripture and for right at a hundred times, the word soul is given to us throughout Scripture, which doesn't even count the many times that the authors would use the word heart or living being or some other uh, visual, tangible description for which we humans like to attach because we have a hard time sort of thinking through those things that we can't touch and see the immaterial. And so all of this description through Scripture, uh, we start to find the attributes of the soul. What does it mean? We could look in the Psalms. Over and over and over, the psalmist tells us that it's in the soul where God most speaks to us. He changes us. He comforts us, encourages us. And then throughout the prophets... Specifically in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah, what we find is that the, the prophets continue to make distinctions between our physical life and being and our true life. They continue to exhort God's people to regularly cleanse your soul, care for your soul. And then they proclaim that the Lord's deliverance is not of body, that the Lord's deliverance is of the soul. Then we move into the New Testament and we have two well-known teachings from Jesus that revolve around the soul. In, in chapter 16, we see that Jesus says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I think that's a song as well. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I think those are both redundant uh, and rhetorical. Jesus isn't looking for an answer because he's saying that there's, there's absolutely nothing you can give for your soul. Surely you know that. That is the greatest, most valuable possession that you have. And he tells us very clearly, there's no level of material gain, wealth, or fame, or anything physical that is more valuable than the eternal destination of the soul. He places the highest priority on our soul over our body, and he expects us to do the same. And then earlier in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Jesus is getting a little bit theological on us. He's given us great doctrine there. He's given us a lesson in the eternal nature of the soul. That the soul can and will live on well beyond when the body does not. And so from Matthew, we could look in each gospel. We could look in uh, the book of Acts. We could look at the letters of Paul. We could look at the letter uh, to the Hebrews. We could look at James, and then we could end up in Revelation where we, are, we observe the souls of the martyrs 
under the altars. All throughout, soul language rooted in Scripture. And if we take all of these scriptural inputs and then we, we blend in a little bit of wordsmithing from some of the more respected uh, theological voices and pastors of, of times that have come before us, then I'm going to suggest that we formulate a starting point definition, one that at least moves us forward in this series. And it would read something like this, that the soul is an internal, it's our inside us, we're immaterial and immortal or eternal substance. It's created in us by God, Genesis 2-7, giving true identity and inner life to our personhood. It encompasses all that we are in our true core self. It's the seat of our emotions. It's the center of our personality and it's our disposition before God. Our standing, our position, our posture before God is definitely soul-rooted. Again, not perfect. I'm not sure there is a perfect definition. I'm sure we could add, we could take away, but I do really hope that it's a, it's a place that will allow us to feel better equipped to speak to the soul and that it will engage us in conversations about where it, where it is in Scripture, how we find it, and, uh, and what it is. So the soul, an introduction to the soul. And what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time now is I'd like us to take that introduction, that foundation, and then look at the ways that the Apostle Peter uses the condition of our soul, the state of our soul, the stages of our soul throughout his first epistle. And uh, in this, I think what he does is he, he emphasizes this critical aspect between the relationship of soul and faith. And so we, we look in 1 Peter, and almost immediately he, he greets the churches, he greets the believers, and then he introduces the most important condition of the soul that we can ever spend our time on, the salvation of the soul. He affirms this as coming through our belief in Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 read that though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have this word, it's a, it's a bit churchy in sense. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you've not. I'm not sure we all understand it, but it's the word regeneration. And I'm going to come back around to it. If you heard the word, to be regenerated. This is what Peter is talking about. The salvation of our souls is the regeneration of our souls. It's the moment that our souls, through God's grace, in our faith, are eternally changed. It's, it's that moment that Paul says is we become a new creation in Christ. For those who have confessed, according to Romans 10, 9, that Jesus is Lord and have believed that Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and the Father raised him from the dead, then we have obtained the outcome of that faith, the salvation of our souls. And really what Peter is implying is that we all have souls. He's telling us right here, we have souls, and they exist in one or two conditions. Those who believe in Jesus have as an outcome of faith a promised eternal delivery, a delivery of eternal life. And yet those who do not believe in Jesus, an outcome of a lack of faith, have no delivery of eternal life. At this most basic level of understanding the soul, our soul exists in one of these two conditions. Frankly, this is the most crucial of the soul-shaping questions that we will experience today, 
over the next several weeks or at any time moving forward, do we have assurance of a soul that has received salvation? One in which we find inexpressible joy even when our physical, our bodies are in pain, are suffering from great illness, or even succumb to death. That knowing our souls as an outcome of our belief in Jesus will be faithfully delivered, same day guaranteed, as promised. The salvation of our souls. And so Peter then progresses. He says that's the most important thing. But then he says it's not over. If you have affirmed faith, if you, if you can affirm the salvation of your souls, hey, heads up. There is a battle for your soul. The war, the war waged by the passions of this world. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, our faith secures our soul for eternity. But it doesn't mean that on this earthly journey that the world will easily give up fighting for it. Peter reminds us, importantly, that we're, we're actually sojourners. We're, we're travelers. We're passing through. We're foreigners in a foreign land. This is not our true citizenship. Our true citizenship resides in heaven. And so because of that, if we begin with that in mind, Peter gives us great advice. Because this world isn't your world, you're a foreigner there, don't get cozy with the world's pleasures and passions. Don't become as a citizen of the world. And he implores us to keep in mind that the flesh, this world, is deceptive. It will seek to steal and destroy. It will call good evil and evil good. And it does its most effective work by luring our soul away with instant gratification, material comforts, and all the distractions which appeal to the flesh and drag the soul down with it. The battle for our soul. There's this great visual aid. It's helped me. I hope it helps you. It's one of the best illustrations that I have found to describe what Peter is talking about here. And it comes from two books written by the same author, James Smith, uh, Desiring the Kingdom and You Are What You Love. And Smith uses this idea across both books to describe the battle for our soul. You see the soul here is depicted by the heart. We, we like to put something tangible to it. But it is between two opposing kingdoms. And the most critical observation we can make of this illustration is that our soul is never completely still. It is never stagnant. It is always being shaped and formed by our desires, either divinely aimed or worldly aimed. It's regular being shaped. They're shaping and forming our soul. And what Smith does is he suggests that over time, we can't help but to become what we desire, what we love. It consumes us. It becomes our private identity first, and then it becomes our public testimony. And Peter says that's the war that's occurring. Be on guard. Fight for your soul. Aim your soul with the desires of God. Salvation of the soul is affirmed. And be on guard, there's a battle for your soul. But then Peter does something just a few verses later that's really great for us. He knows that if we're going into battle, and this is this great long war, that we're going to win some and we're going to lose some. We're not always going to aim our souls in the right direction. And he gives us this great encouragement of how we can more consistently win this battle with the flesh and the world. 
And he says it's by following the shepherd of our soul, the overseer of our soul. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Now, in view primarily, contextually, we have to uh, acknowledge that Peter has uh, the idea of eternal healing in mind again. It's returning to the salvation of the souls. That the wounds of the cross do bring the lost and the wandering sheep back to the shepherd. But Peter's writing to believers. He's writing to churches. And so he's also speaking of here the idea of restoration. The ideal of healing the soul for believers. And he uses this shepherd and this overseer imagery, much of what we, we spoke to last month with the guidance study and series. And because of shepherding and overseeing, his readers would have been especially reassured. We should be too. We really should be too. The, the shepherd and the overseer guides us, protects us, provides for us, watches over us, all of us. And, and, and we face, let's face it, um, all of us have strayed from the flock, a little or a lot. In fact, I would suggest there are many of us sitting here this, this morning who would acknowledge that uh, perhaps you are as far away from the shepherd as you have ever been. And you wouldn't be alone in that. You're deeply hurting. You're broken. Perhaps you've fallen into a state of worldly pleasures, worldly addictions. And like many, perhaps your soul is being influenced in unchristlike ways into unchristlike shapes, empty, joyless. And if this is you, I want you to know just a couple of things. One, the shepherd of your soul is eager to provide care. Secondly, in this current season, much of our series on soul care and soul shaping is going to deal with practices and understandings which do bring healing and renewal. And we desperately hope that you find it. In fact, it's our sincere uh, desire and prayer that each of us will more regularly walk under the watchful eye of the overseer, open to his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, eager for our souls to find rest, to be less noisy, cluttered to confess and lament more regularly, even alongside more singing and celebration. This is the soul care of the shepherd, the care of our souls. I was thinking about the idea of uh, soul care. This word, not sure if you, if you realize it or not, but this word in the New Testament is pronounced suke, suke. If you saw it, you would understand uh, why it is the root of the word psyche. P-S-U-C-H-E is the suke. As you might guess, it's where we get psychology. And ology is always the study of, so quite literally, psychology is the study of the soul. Now, that's interesting to me because in today's secular worldview, and often one that's shared among many secular psychologists, not all, but many, it's one that denies the existence of the soul. In other words, they prefer to think of you and I as simply soulless beings. That we're, we're a living organism on par with the family dog, mosquito, tree. A tomato on the vine. And yet while many, but not all, will treat psychology in this way, we're reminded of the original intentions of this discipline by one of its most famous practitioners. And so I'm going to ask you to, to just uh, 
really pay attention because it is very rare, not often at all, that we would introduce Dr. Sigmund Freud into a sermon. <laughs> but we do this morning because I believe Dr. Freud seems to have best summed up the role of his practice when he said once, in its purest form, its most helpful form, psychology is the treatment of the soul. Now, admittedly, that's still likely a secular nod to Dr. Freud, but in truth, caring for the soul in its purest form of healing. And, and from that perspective, think about it, Jesus, the great psychologist, by his wounds, our souls are eternally healed, and by returning to his care, our souls are best treated. So Peter emphasizes salvation of the battle for, the care of with the shepherd, and then lastly, Peter tells us what we can do with our soul. What can we desire to do with our soul actively? And he says that we are to entrust and commit our souls to God. In chapter 4, he writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This was my... Uh, you always have our time to say, what's your favorite verse or passage, right? Well, this was one that most resonated with me throughout the week of study. I think it's a fantastic verse because there's three things going on that we can pull out of this. Number one, we are reminded of the context of the letter. Peter says, therefore, let those who suffer. See, Peter's writing from Rome to Gentile churches across the Roman Empire around A.D. 65, this is a time of some, of some of the greatest, most brutal persecution of the church. The emperor Nero is, is blaming Christians. He has created a scapegoat of Christians for having burned down the city of Rome. Even his closest advisors acknowledged that it was Nero behind the fire. He wanted to rebuild Rome. But yet he sent out the message to destroy Christianity, their faith, and to persecute all believers. <laughs> And so in this statement, we're reminded of that context. And then, because of that context, Peter uses this phrase that we don't use often. We may not even use the word that much. Entrust their souls. Entrust. Entrust is a word that originated as a banking term. It's a financial term. It means to deposit for safekeeping <clears throat> or to place something of high value in the care of another. So, what's Peter saying? In short, regardless of the trials, regardless of your context, when we endure them in pursuit of God's will, it's as if we have entrusted or deposited our soul with the most, of the most valuable possession we have with the one who is most able to keep them safe. That despite the trouble surrounding us, our souls are most at rest when they rest in the security of the Lord. Context in trust, and then there's this full circle moment this morning. Peter uses the name creator for God. It's the only time in the New Testament that it's used. And we start thinking again about Genesis 2-7. Because see, Peter knew this truth as well. He knew that when we entrust our souls to the Lord, we were simply returning them to their rightful owner, the creator of our souls. That's a rich understanding when we choose to entrust our souls with the Lord. That's also a whole lot of soul to chew on this morning. <laughs> I know. But here's what I'd like you to do for the next few days. I'd love you to chew on it. 
This morning's objective was to increase our awareness of how relevant our souls are to God, to prompt us to consider the condition of our own soul, and to ready us for the further discovery of soul-shaping practices in the weeks ahead. And the last thing I'd like to show you with this is I'd like to ask you four questions, again, to chew on this week as a matter of application. Number one, the most important question we will ask today, tomorrow, all year, ever, have I been healed by his wounds and assured of the salvation of my soul? If you answer no to that, then please stop. Do not pass go. Most of the other questions are irrelevant. But please know that we would love to have conversation with you. We'd love to answer questions. We would encourage you to stay with us, to continue to be curious, to continue to seek. If you answer yes, then move on to two. Where in my life is the world waging war on my soul? Am I ready to defend it? Can I name it? Can I name the battle in my life? And am I ready to defend it for the sake of my soul? Number three, is my soul in need of the shepherd's healing? And to that, I would suggest that 100% of us would say yes. I know I would. Number four, am I ready to commit to the soul-shaping practices that allow God to change me? This is the rubber hitting the road right here. And this is what truly begins next week. We put our commitments into action with the first teaching of soul-shaping practices. And I know Pastor Beatty spoke to this last week, but just as, again, a quick overview, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking each week at some primary scripture. Again, the, the evidence of the Bible on how we should be living out our daily life. And then, supplementary to that, we are going to be using Soul Shaper by Keith Drury. And I should tell you, there was such an overwhelming response. As of 1022, I think we're out of books. <laughs> so we have hundreds more coming this week. Uh, we do have plenty of guides, and we'd love for you to pick up a guide and uh, just take it. And then uh, next week, you can uh, uh, suggest a $5 donation for the book, too. Uh, but we'd, we'd love to be able to walk through that with you. Each week, we're going to introduce this new discipline. And these aren't practices as we normally think of them. Uh, journaling or breath prayers or memorizing a verse, all very good, all very necessary. But this isn't about compliance. This is about change. And these are practices of how we actually respond to life around us. We're going to become more intentional in our selflessness, in our silence, in our peacemaking. And we're going to seek to be more purposeful in restraining our anger, our bitterness, our tongues. And our request is that each week as we do, if we would just take that application and apply it for seven days, just commit on the way out of here that, okay, I, I think I can do this for seven days. I'm going to be observant. I want to commit my soul to this soul-shaping practice. I want God to shape me through this week. That at the very end of the series, that we all will have found one or two, or three or a handful that resonate with us, and we will simply respond to life in that way moving forward. Soul change, allowing God to change us. Ultimately, what that will do, we pray and we believe in our hearts, is that we will grow individually, strengthening our souls, and that the soul of His church here at River Oaks will be sent out to live in ways that are so radically countercultural that with grace and truth and love, that the families, the neighborhoods, the communities, 
that we touch will experience the life-changing reality of God's presence around them. Soul-shaping, allowing God to change us. Let us pray. Lord, we do come humbly in this pursuit, and yet we come very expectantly. We pray, Lord, most importantly, that the answer of the salvation of our souls would be answered and affirmative by all who hear this, that all would come to know you, and that would be the outcome of our faith. Lord, we pray for the battles that we face even this afternoon and tomorrow, that, Lord, our desires would not be of the flesh or of the world, but they would be truly of your kingdom, Lord. And Lord, we know under your care, your oversight, you're here to bring restoration and to heal us. And we pray for that, Lord. And Lord, we pray our desire is to entrust our souls to you, to recognize and acknowledge that you truly are the only one who can keep them safely. Lord, we pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Soul shaping. So a couple of thoughts before Wes and... Uh, wraps us up with our final uh, time of worship through song. Community life, you knew it was coming, February 11th. If you've never joined us with Run for God this year, we're going to Chase Lions. It's part study, part training, part connection, and all fun and fellowship and life change. So uh, we would love to answer any questions on Run for God, but that's coming up a week from Monday with an orientation, non-committal, show up, have part of our Carbopalooza activity. Secondly, we would like to uh, pray and have our focus this morning, our missions prayer focus, on Bruce Anderson and his family. Many of you are familiar with Bruce. Bruce speaks at, uh, often at our International Missions Sundays. Uh, Bruce is the founder, so to speak, uh, and uh, leader of I-10, which is the International Theological Education Network within our denomination. And the reason we want to pray especially for Bruce this morning is he continues to spend much of his time in areas that are... Um, underserved with equipping pastors and seminaries and leaders of the church. Uh, last week, I believe he was in Vietnam, and then he was headed to the Middle East, and he spent some time in Eastern Europe. The other reason that, that Bruce uh, has a special place in our heart is that uh, he is the one who introduced us to the pastors and uh, missionaries in Myanmar or Burma, for which uh, just a few weeks ago, some of you may know that Rodney Balkum, a member of our church, and myself had the privilege of once again for the fourth year, representing you, taking you with us uh, to Yangon, Myanmar. And um, I'll just show you a few, few photos from our trip. Uh, at, at this leadership training, we spend a week with um, uh, seminary students, pastors, elders, missionaries uh, that are located throughout the country. For them, it's one of the one times uh, all year that they have the, the uh, financial ability and the time uh, to come together and, and be strengthened in worship and through training and through through class seminars, and this year, an especially moving time, we spent half a day in a prayer walk around Yangon. Five and a half million people, so not literally around Yangon, but uh, in various places around temples and streets, and we took the time that was as life-changing for them as it was for Rodney and I to actually intentionally acknowledge people, to not just walk by them on the street, and uh, it, was, it was very moving. I think we, we all could experience that more often now, to hear the voices and see the, see the faces and, and learn the stories. I'll leave you with a praise, and I'll ask you to continue to pray for these men and women. As in several parts of the country, there is still great military oppression. Some of them are seeing villages uprooted every week and having to move to new locations. 
In fact, our unreached people group uh, provided me some funds to take to those specific missionaries in Rakhine State. Um, that's not one of them, uh, <laughs> as uh, for food shortage. But uh, a certain praise for sure. Uh, this is our fourth year, and we have seen each year increasingly openness from the, uh, the government of Myanmar to open up religious freedoms. Six, seven years ago, it was a very closed country. Foreigners were really not allowed, and certainly there was no external communication or conversation around uh, the Christian faith. Uh, churches continue to grow. Uh, many young people are now allowed to pursue Christianity and convert without it being an issue of family shame and, uh, and dishonor. And so we see a very young church there. Uh, but even more so, uh, as Bruce works with the government... He had a class for 12 parliament members uh, after we left. Uh, this was the first time in the history of their country. I mean, we don't say that often, right? But the first time in the history of their country that uh, churches and citizens of Yangon City were allowed public displays of Christmas. The first time. Now, I can assure you that did not include a single Santa Claus or candy cane. That was the nativity and the cross and the, and the celebration of the birth of Christ. And that was a tremendous praise. And so um, we continue to pray there. We, we, again, we thank you uh, for your supporting uh, these men and women. And uh, as a bit of soul shaping this morning, uh, we have a message from Dr. Teal Tonga. And uh, as it begins, I'll ask the ushers to come forward uh, to uh, allow us to worship and tithes and offerings. And hey, I'm here, cards. But following his message... Uh, these men and women are going to lead us in a stanza of the doxology, and then Wes will be out, and we'll stand, and we'll complete this. But uh, let Dr. Till and the uh, brothers and sisters of Myanmar touch your soul this morning. Hello, everybody at uh, River Oak Community Church. Appreciate for supporting, uh, sponsoring our uh, leadership training here. We appreciate it so much and uh, we pray for you and thank you for your prayer support and uh, God bless you. Hope to see you sometime. <laughs> <laughs> 